This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Okay, let's return to our seats if we can. And uh, open your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We are in a series on the theme of community. And I'm going to stick with that today. We are really, this is the second part of a message that I preached last week on unity in the community. So we looked last week at how God unifies his people in a church. And uh, this week we want to look at what is our responsibility to maintain what God has brought together to maintain the unity that he brings. So let me pray and then we will uh, jump into this text. God, we thank you today for the unity that you have created. We thank you for the unity that you have brought in Jesus Christ to us as a people. And we pray today that we would guard. We pray that we would treasure. We pray that we would maintain the, the, the unity that you bring by your Holy Spirit. Please help us to do that as a church for your glory, Lord. And uh, we just thank you for all that you have already done in this church family, and ask that today you would meet us in a way that would enable us to even grow in unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ and to maintain what you have done by your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before we read these verses, we're going to read about six verses in Ephesians 4, but I need to really quickly tell you what happens in Ephesians 1 1 through 3. This is a letter that Paul wrote Paul's an apostle. He wrote to a church in Ephesus. And this is what Paul does in the first three chapters. In the first three chapters, Paul describes what God has done for us. So he takes three chapters and he talks about God's activity. He talks about before the world was even created, God chose us as his people. He actually, in verse 5, says he chose us to be adopted as his people before the world even began. In, in chapter 2, he talks about the fact that we were dead spiritually. We had no love for God, no desire for God on our own. We were dead, but he brought us from death to life. So that's something God did. In chapter 3, he talks about the fact that he brought Jews and Gentiles, that's non-Jews, he brought us all together in Jesus Christ. So those who are believers in Christ are one, whether they're Jew or Gentile. That is all God's doing. Now, here's something amazing. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, if my memory serves me, I don't think there's one command of anything we're to do. It's all about what God has done for us. And that's grace, what God has done for us. Chapters 4 through 6 talks about in light of what God has done for us by sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins, um, in light of what God has done for us, here's how we are to live for him. He's done all this for us, so here's how we live a life in response to him. So chapters 4 through 6 have a lot of emphasis on how we are to live in light of what he's done in the gospel. So let's read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. This is the starting place of where Paul begins to tell us how to live based on what Jesus has done for us. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he talks about all that God has done, and then he starts in verse 1 by saying, back to verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. God's called us to himself by sending Jesus, by Jesus dying for us, by God giving us new life through faith in Jesus Christ. He's done all of this for us. And then he says, so here's what I want you to do. In light of that calling, I want you to live in a manner worthy of that calling. Now, what he's not saying is live in a manner that that, will make you worth God's love. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying live well enough so that God's obligated to love you. That's not what he's talking about. This word worthy means live in a way that's fitting in light of what God has done for you. Live in a way that's appropriate in light of what God has done for you. So we're to live in a certain way because we've been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. Well, how do we live in this manner? How do we live this appropriate life based on what he's done? I think we find the heart of it in verse 3. What comes before leads up to this, and what follows verse 3 flows from it. But verse 3 is the center. How do we live in a manner worthy, appropriate to our calling? This is it. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In the bond of peace. Here's how the New International Version of the New Testament translates this. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort. So we have unity as Christians because of what Christ has done for us. But we are now to make every effort to keep the unity that Christ has provided. That's the point of the passage. Make every effort to keep the unity that Christ has already provided. So it's not saying we provide the unity. It's not saying get everybody together, stand in a circle, hold hands, go like 80s and sing We Are the World and get a warm feeling, a kind of kumbaya moment. This is not what he's saying. He's saying the unity's already there. Jesus has made you one. Now, live like it. Maintain, keep practically what God has accomplished for us spiritually so that there'll be a living demonstration. This is what Christ has done for us. Here's what it looks like. We're unified. We're unified together. Be eager. That's what he says at the beginning. Eager to maintain the unity. This eager, there's an element of haste here. There's an element of urgency perhaps even an element of crisis, we must maintain this unity that Christ has accomplished, dependent on His Holy Spirit to do so in us and through us. Now, this is astounding when you think about it. And here's why. He's given us three chapters of what Christ has done for us. Now He's going to talk about how should we live. And He starts with community. I don't think that's where most of us would start. I mean, most of us, if we said, okay, here's what happens. Jesus dies for our sins and is raised again so that we can be new people. So believe that. Okay, you believe that? Now, here's the first thing you need to do. Um, Where would we start? Read your Bible. Pray. 
witness, serve. Nothing wrong with any of those. Those are all good things to do. But he starts not with you, but with you plural. Y'all. That's where he starts. He didn't start with you. He starts with y'all. And he says, maintain this unity because we're so individualized in the way we view faith. But God is very corporate. Jesus dies to save a people for himself. And yes, you're an individual witness of Christ. But the people are a living demonstration that he's united Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, different people with different preferences. And he's made them one. And the, the demonstration of that gospel unity shows forth in our lives. So that's where he starts is with community. Okay, how do we maintain this community? How do we maintain this unity? Well, he gives us three things in the verse before. Number one, walk humbly. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling, verse two, with all humility. Walk humbly. That's how we maintain the unity that he's already provided for us. If you read the first three chapters, humility is a natural response. For instance, back to the adoption metaphor, which I would have used anyway, but it is most appropriate today. Back to the adoption. This is what he says in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption. Chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Here's what Paul is saying. Before the world was even created, God chose you to be his son, that he would adopt you into his family. Now, what orphan who is adopted would credit themselves for their adoption? I'm speaking physically now. If an orphan was a fatherless person, a parentless person, was brought into a family, what would their response be? Thank you. You chose me. You adopted me. You welcomed me. You incorporated me. All the gratitude would go to the parent who adopted the child. Same here. If our salvation is really based on all that he's done, we pause and say, I didn't make this happen. You chose me. You saved me. You welcomed me into your family. God is very big in that picture. And I am very small. Or take chapter 2. You were dead in your sins, but he made you alive. What dead person can make themselves alive? If you were brought back from the dead, raised from the dead, as we will be one day, raised from the dead to be with Jesus Christ, those of us who believe, then you'll say, I didn't do that. I wasn't kind of rolling around in the grave and kind of came to. That happened because of you. I can't take any credit. Do you see the point? The first three chapters say, this is all God's work. So we have much to be humble about and really nothing to boast about. So there is this humility that comes naturally when we see the scripture. Humility shouldn't be like graduate level Christianity. Humility, he's starting here. That's the beginning point. God did all this for you. You should be thankful. You have nothing to credit yourself for. You weren't good enough, smart enough, wise enough, moral enough. You're not more moral than the next person. You just tasted the grace of God. That's all. And so we give him the credit and say thanks to him. But this humility not only right-sizes us in how we view God, humility should right-size us in how we view others as well. And that's where this unity in the community comes into play. That's where this unity in the church comes into play. Humility fosters unity or helps us maintain the unity that he's already accomplished is a better way to say it. The word humility here means lowliness of mind. 
lowliness of mind. It means that in humility, not only seeing how great God is, but seeing how I relate to others, I should be right-sized. Humility should cause me to have a lower, a lower kind of confidence in myself, in my own self-sufficiency. I should lower my confidence in my own opinions, my own preferences in the family, in the church. I should be grateful to God and I should look to serve others. Humility affects how we view other people. Humility affects how we judge other people. I'm not going to retell it. You can download the message if you'd like. Last week, I took a long, well, not a long time, but I gave a pretty detailed illustration about relating to other people who have a different educational choice for their children and how humility is required for people who have differing opinions on what's best for their children to love, serve, prefer others. What does that look like? We talked about that last week. That's an example of how humility should cause me to judge others differently. It should cause me to respect, to love, to put their interest above my own and to put ultimately the unity in the community because of Christ to put that above all. Often we, someone said, often we judge other people by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. So I give myself a pass. You did that. I judge your motives. This is why you did it. But me, I'm just like, Hey, I'm okay. Well, I didn't mean to do that. Or I didn't mean, I give myself a pass. We can be quick to judge other people. Humility doesn't judge the motives of other people. There's a lowliness of mind that looks to the greatness of God, looks to serve others, believe the best about others, care for others, and looks to maintain the unity that God has provided. Commentator Matthew Henry said this, what would become of us if God should be as exact and severe in judging us as we are in judging our brothers. What would become of us if God was as exact and severe in judging us as Christians as we are in judging our brothers and sisters? See, humility causes me to believe the best about another person rather than judge another person until obviously some kind of facts can be established. This believing the best means I expect, I'm suspect of my motives But humility means I cannot be suspect of your motives. I just don't do real well on the omniscience category, knowing everything, so I can't even know your motives. But that can happen. And when I'm proud and not humble, that kind of motive judgment can bring division quickly. You know, so-and-so at church, they didn't even speak to me. Walked right by me, didn't even speak to me. I know they are so proud, so arrogant, didn't even acknowledge me. Maybe they didn't see you. I mean, that's a possibility. Maybe they weren't arrogant and proud, but you see how that judgment can happen. I just assess that they, they, maybe they were in a hurry. Maybe their kid was crying in children's ministry and they're hurrying to get their child. But I can begin to relate to them. Oh, yeah, they don't like me. How do you know? They walked right by me last Sunday at church. Guarantee you they do not like me. Do you think they like me? Why am I telling you this to begin with? That's a problem. But they don't. So we just judge. Just judge. And we can take a lack of humility. Humility says... Seemed like they were in a hurry, hope everything's okay. Now, if that becomes a pattern that they look at me and won't speak at me, then maybe I should engage. Once there's a pattern, I should ask them about that, of course. But I'm I'm not allowed to be 
Captain Omniscient that knows everything and evaluate everyone else's motives. Or how about this one? Well, I, I see that so-and-so is becoming friends with so-and-so. I was friends with so-and-so A, but now so-and-so A is friends with so-and-so B, so so-and-so A probably doesn't even like me anymore. They don't even want to be my friend. They just want to be friends with people that they like that want to be their friends, and they are selfish or whatever the category may be. There's never been a conversation. There's, never been, there's just been my judgment of your motives. Did you see what so-and-so bought? Whew. They are materialistic. That's multiple. I added a syllable. That's how bad it was. They are materialistic. I can't believe they bought that. May have been a gift. May have been fine for them to buy that. I may be jealous. Probably jealous. That's the bigger issue. Humility says, why does it bother me that they have that and I don't? As opposed to assessing their motive in the purchase. Or we go to someone else and assess their motives. Hey, is it just me? Or do you think so-and-so is kind of fill in the blank? We really should be saying, I'd like to invite you into my judgment. I'm judging someone, and what I'd like to do is gossip with you about it and draw you into my judgment because there's room on this throne for one other. So why don't you come on up here with me and let's spend time together assessing their motives. That's what happens. When that attitude is present, there will be division because there will be an absence of humility. Humility doesn't assess motives of others. Humility prefers others. And when there is an obvious issue, there is a humble approach and a dialogue about it. Not a judgment, not a gossip, but going to the person and dialoguing humbly about, I just want to make sure there's nothing wrong. I just, it seems from my perspective, like the last three Sundays you walked right by me and uh, didn't say hi. I mean, I was going like that, but you just walked on by. So I think you saw me, but you know, Okay, so then we have a dialogue. That's humility. That's humility. Closely related, humility not only affects our judgment of others, but how we deal in conflict. Living worthy of the gospel and making every effort, is what he says, means I want to resolve conflict with you. But humility means when we come to resolve conflict, I want to, I'm more concerned about my contribution to the conflict than I am about your contribution to the conflict. So, Us resolving it means that in humility, I'm not here to set you straight. I'm here to learn in the first place what I can about my contribution to the problem because I'm going to answer to God for that. Secondly, I want to to share with you my concerns as well so that we can have unity and maintain the unity of the Spirit. But that that requires humility. I think humility, I don't know that there's any more important spirit-born virtue than humility to maintain unity. Show me any group where there is divisiveness, where there is segments, where there are cliques, where there is division, and there will be pride all over the place. But look at any group, Christian group, where there is a unity in heart and purpose. There won't be be a conflict-free zone for sure, but there will be humility present. There will be humility present. So walk in a manner worthy of your calling to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of the peace. How do we do that? Walk with all humility. Number two, walk gently. Not just with humility, but walk gently. The word can also be translated meekly or meekness. 
All gentleness, all meekness. Meekness doesn't mean wimpiness. Gentleness doesn't mean wimpiness. At all. It it means strength with self-control. One author said, gentleness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights either in the presence of God or man. So gentleness means that I relate to you not primarily to assert my rights, but to serve you. That my default position, the default position of humility is I'm here to serve you, not to demand my rights. That's the difference. Now, is there obviously, there's a place, I hope I'm making that clear. There's a place to talk about when there's issues, there's conflict, there's concerns, there's sin against one another. There's a place to talk about that. We don't ignore that. But the disposition of the heart is I'm not here demanding. That's harshness. I'm here to serve. That's gentleness. The attitude of humility comes forth where there's self-control in the speech, in the demeanor, in the action, so that there is gentleness. These two words, humility and gentleness, they characterize Jesus Christ. Think about this scripture. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus is humble. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, is what Philippians 2 says. And he humbles himself, and he relates gently. The the Bible says that anyone who would come to Jesus, Jesus said, I will never cast them out. Anyone who comes desiring to have their sins forgiven and to know Jesus Christ, he will never cast them out. He will gently welcome them. That's the heart of the Savior. And there are times when obviously he brought correction, and that was usually to the religious people, that he brings strong correction. But there is a characteristic gentleness of heart. It's interesting, in the fruit of the Spirit, self-control and gentleness appear next to each other, that self-control and gentleness, I believe, are related. So how do we make every effort to keep the unity, to maintain the unity of the Spirit? We cultivate humility so that we aren't impressed with ourselves, we're impressed with the Savior, and we cultivate gentleness so we aren't demanding of others, that's harshness, but we're serving others. Here's the last of the three mentioned here. Walk patiently. So walk humbly to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Walk gently, walk patiently, bearing with others in love, he says. The word patient is described by that phrase, bear with one another in love. That's verse 2. Bear with one another in love. Patience is not necessary with those we are naturally enjoying. So if you're having a moment where you're naturally enjoying someone, Patience is not necessary. Patience is required when we have to bear with someone. That's when it requires patience. I find this very fascinating. He starts with walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Number two, to walk in the manner of worthy, we're going to talk about community. Next, to talk about community, we're going to talk about patience. Because we all have to bear with one another. The reality is some people, Christians, some Christians are looking for community that doesn't exist this side of heaven. There will be a day when you won't have to put up with anybody, 
where there will be no one that aggravates you and no one that requires patience. That day is heaven when you will get along with everyone in your community, yea, everyone who's ever lived in history who's a Christian, you'll get along with them because there will be a unity without sin. But wherever we live that is not heaven, patience is required. You say, well, the people in my care group or a person in my care group, that person, every time he or she opens his mouth, her mouth, it, it requires my patience every time they open their mouth and begin to talk for the next 35 minutes at the care group. It requires my patience. You know what Paul would say? That's expected. He leads with the patience. He starts with patience. He says God is... Maintain the unity that God has brought in the church. And we need to talk about patience to start with. It is assumed. It is expected that others will require your patience. Welcome to community. That is reality. I love John Stott's definition of patience here. In this verse, he says, patience is long-suffering toward aggravating people. Such as God in Christ has shown towards us. He says patience is extending long-suffering to those who are aggravating just like God has extended grace to you who were His enemy because of your sin. In other words, he says God has extended long-suffering to you that's indescribable. God has put up with me and my ignorance, and my willfulness, and my rebellion, and my one more time I'm asking forgiveness for the same thing. God has been long-suffering and patience for me from the time I drew a breath until now. And he's saying, in the same way, can you exercise, not can you, you must exercise patience to those around you. God, being a part of a church and being a part of community will require you to exercise patience and bear with someone in love. That is the nature of the beast. That is community, is bearing with one another in love. And if you haven't had to be patient with someone, just stick around. You will have an opportunity. I love the reality of the scriptures lofty theology. He starts the book in eternity past. We can't even understand that. Eternity past, God was choosing a people for Himself. All this lofty language about reconciliation and, and grace and all of these huge theological points in chapters 1 through 3. And in chapter 4, it's like He says, now all of that, here's the purpose of all of that. Walk in unity with one another, and that's going to mean in light of what Christ has done, empowered by what Christ has done, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to extend patience to one another. You're going to have to bear with one another in love. See, unity, he says maintain the unity of the Spirit. Unity is not an absence of difficulty. It's not like we're having unity because we went on a cruise together and it's easy. Unity is when there's difficulty and conflict by the grace of God, just as God exercised patience to us, we exercise patience with one another and we work our difficulties out, we work our conflicts out with all humility and all gentleness. That's what he says. Listen, many Christians have never experienced community in the church, the kind of community he's talking about and that we've been talking about. I think this is the eighth week. This is going to be three weeks. I'm just keep extending it. So this is like the eighth week. 
And the kind of things we've talked about every week in unit about community, most people never, or many people never taste that community, never taste that unity because they're unwilling to bear with anyone in love. And so they leave before they even have an opportunity. Now, there are reasons to leave a church. When you come down and at an aisle, you exchange vows with your husband or wife. You say, till death do us part. You don't say, till death do us part when you join a church. There are reasons to leave a church. All kinds of circumstances. So I'm not saying that there, you, you never leave a church. But what I am saying is that when we leave a church in the midst of a situation that requires our patience our humility, our gentleness, uh, our a conflict that we need to resolve. When we leave then prematurely, we miss the opportunity of experiencing the Spirit in community. We miss that. We miss the opportunity to give evidence to the grace of God who's made us one, and it doesn't look like it right now, maybe, if you're in the middle of a conflict. It doesn't look like we're one right now. It doesn't look like our care group is one. But it's true, Jesus died and we are one. Now we've got to maintain that unity and it's going to require us to exercise all the things we just talked about. If, if I depart the first time my patience is required, then I will miss the sweetness of community. I always get nervous. About to have the next new members class, the third of uh, four meetings are going to have lunch. I'm saying something to all of us right now, but these last couple minutes, I've got a couple minutes left. I'm going to say something to that class and all of us as well. I get really nervous, and no one in this class has done this, so I'm not speaking to this class. Actually, I don't have any of you in mind. I need to build some fences because I'm about to be critical. I don't have, I honestly don't have anyone in mind, but I've had this experience with generic people over 20 years of pastoral ministry. Honestly, I'm being true. I don't, can't think of anybody, but over 20 years, I've had a lot of people come to me and say, this church is what I've been looking for. This is so great. This church is amazing. I, I've been looking, I've been praying my whole life. I finally found the church. And the more they go on, the more nervous I get. Because the higher they go, I realize the crash is going to be so great. Because Paul, and then I have to immediately say, guess what? You will be required to extend patience with this church, which is so great. It's not going to always feel like this. And the reality is that Paul says from the beginning, community, lesson one, humility, gentleness, patience, because there's going to be people that will try your patience all over the place. That's where he starts with this. This last week, we were at our pastor's conference. Thanks for praying for us. We're part of a group of churches called Sovereign Grace Ministries. We had pastors and wives and leaders, both from our group and outside of our group, all over the really number of nations represented there. And I had a fascinating conversation with a guy who pastors a, a Sovereign Grace church, a sister church of ours in the UK. And we had a fascinating conversation where he said what I just described to you. Um, we weren't even talking about this, but he just said, he, he gave me a lesson on how Americans appear to folks in the UK. And he says, this is an American phenomenon. He says, you guys in your churches, you come in and you do what I just said. This is phenomenal. And he said, then when they leave, they're like, this is terrible. They said this church was going to be this, this, that. It's nothing like that. It is the worst church I've ever been. I'm so mad. So he said, people come in so high. And they leave so low. He said, that is you Americans. We love Obama. We hate Obama. He said, that's the, way, that's the way it appears to us. We're looking over here. The whole country is crazy about him. And now the whole country hates him. We don't get that. And so he said, here's how the new member church, new members class is in the UK. This church is okay. Yeah, I'll probably join this. It's pretty good. 
He says, but when they leave, it's, I just left a pretty good, okay church. You know, it's, I didn't leave the greatest, the worst. Now, I would like a little more enthusiasm in heart when someone joins a church than maybe they ex- his experience in the UK. I, I, hope it's, I hope when you join the church, it's a little better than like, that's mashed potatoes. It's all right. I can take them or leave them. Hopefully, you feel a little more faith than that. And that's where he wants to tone us down. I'd, I'd like to say to my UK brothers, you, you might need a little caffeine on how you're viewing. You need to pep up a little bit. We have learned a few things past couple hundred years over here or something. So we, we know a few things. So I guess I would say, uh, you know, maybe that needs to be elevated. But his point is well taken. There is a lack of realism. And in any way that I'm trying not to promote, I'm trying to promote realism this morning. So in any way that we've not promoted that, let us know. We want to grow and change because I, I don't want to promote the false ideal nirvana church. I want, to, I want to promote reality church that is hopeful because God works with sinners and God unites us as one and God enables us to maintain, to keep the unity that he has provided by the power of the Holy Spirit as we focus on the gospel, which is the work of Jesus Christ to make us one, as we lean on God and trust the Holy Spirit to give us these hard attitudes, humility, gentleness, and patience with one another, Because the stuff is here and it's coming. So we're going to have to be patient. We're going to have to get reconciled where necessary. We're going to have to celebrate. Last week, if you didn't hear it, it was all about celebrating unity. I'm not celebrating the same way today. Last week was all about celebrating unity. Because that's what Psalm 133 is about. Behold how good and pleasant. So we behold what God has done. We recognize his work of grace in bringing uh, unity. We celebrate it. And we say God calls us to maintain what he's done. So I best get on my knees and recognize his greatness, how small I am. I best be suspect of my motives and not yours. I best prefer you in humility than myself. And when conflict comes, seek unity for the glory of God and for your good first, not so that I can tell you off and tell you where you're wrong in every way. I must not judge your motives, for I'm not omniscient and I don't know your motives. I must relate with you, not in a manner of demanding my rights, but in serving you. That's gentleness. And I must be ready to be patient with you as God has been patient with me. And we extend that patience, bear with one another in love, realizing that every one of us are a whole lot to bear with. But the Savior has borne all of our sins. And not only bears with us, but welcomes us into his family for eternity. And so we want to extend that to others. Unity is a gift that comes at the greatest price. The blood of Jesus Christ had to be shed. He had to substitute himself to bring unity. It comes at the greatest price. And this word, this word where he starts with be eager. There is an urgency that we be those who maintain that unity for the glory of God and for the good of others, and for the witness to the world. Because out in the world where people are are not in the church, so to speak, they can find division everywhere. But you can't find this kind of genuine, heartfelt unity apart from the grace of God changing people's hearts and bringing them together. May God grant us grace to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you today that you are the one who have made your church one. And we celebrate that today, Lord. We look to you and we, we say thank you, Jesus, for giving your life so that our sins might be forgiven. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for not only joining us and reconciling us to yourself, but to your people. 
We're so grateful for that. And Lord, we just pray today that we as a church would be those who could be characterized by the Holy Spirit's work of humility and gentleness and patience, God. May that be evidenced here. Lord, we pray that differences and conflicts and offenses would be dealt with in a forthright and in a real manner. Lord, help us to guard from, from ignoring things that shouldn't be ignored. But we pray that those would be worked out in grace. Lord, help us to have a right-sized vision of you and ourselves. May you be great in our eyes and may we be small in our eyes. And may the good of our brother and sister be great in our eyes. And may our, um, Lord, may our rights and our demands and our preferences be small. Lord, we pray that the glory of God would motivate us in this way. God, thank you for the many ways that there is unity in our church. Lord, there are not just pockets of unity. It is broadly the norm of our experience. And it's probably true there are just pockets of division. And we pray where that is the case. Would you enter those pockets with your word, by your grace, through your Holy Spirit, and bring a unity that reflects the oneness we experience in Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for you are glorious. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.